Episode 9, Night and the Wind The walls of the mansion groaned. Every minute the wind blew harder. Outside there was a crack and then a crash. Dagan hoped it wasn't the old man. That's what he called the huge oak next to the house. It couldn't be him. He'd stood there 400 years. But why not him? Everything had to die sometime. It was a depressing thought, but as he entered his third-floor suite, he wasn't depressed. He felt peaceful. He had made his choice. As far back as he could remember, he had experienced strange visions, voices, and urges, most of which he had followed, and all of them had flowed out of the central theme that guided his life, The myth of the warrior-sorcerer who stands alone against the forces of evil, willing to live in the ever-frigid present without the false solace of love, hate, or God. It was a myth pieced together from a rancid collection of old comic books, TV shows, and movies, mashed with a half-dozen different religions and philosophies understood on a superficial level, but he didn't care. With it, he had achieved amazing success. He had also achieved a life sentence in prison, but one had to expect such minor glitches along the warrior-sorcerer's way. The hellish wind just never stopped blowing. He realized this was the first time that he had ever been alone in the mansion. Many of his staff lived here. It was a benefit that he provided. But the constant human presence wore on him. He hated the sound of footsteps in the halls, of babbling voices, chirping trivia. Strange how he missed it now. Strange how he missed them. No, not strange, not really. It was one of the paradoxes of his life, how much he disliked people, yet how deeply he needed and understood them. Why did he hate doing so-called psychic readings? Because if he opened himself, within a few moments he would be overwhelmed by the agony that would gush from a human soul. He could see images in that pain. Always when he described them to the sitter, it was as though he had lanced a pus-filled boil. The spiritual rot came pouring out, but he had no way to heal it. The purging would make them feel better for a few hours or days, but the source of the infection was far deeper. He couldn't reach it, and he knew it. After every reading, pussing, purging session, he would carry the pain for weeks. Doing readings was like being an oncologist who correctly diagnoses cancer, then is satisfied to pop a pimple. That's why long ago he had stopped doing them. He couldn't stand it anymore. Rubbing his eyes, he looked around. Home. His home. The littered center of his power, filled with strange memories from another world. In that other world, these rooms had belonged to her. When he wasn't in battle, he would come to her right here. Since he had bought the mansion, sometimes when he was lying in bed, he would dream that she was lying next to him. But she wasn't. The tracks of those dimensions had never converged again. He was glad that he hadn't let Ellie pack everything away. She had badgered him, but he had insisted that it would be safe here on the third floor with the windows boarded, Nothing was safe, not this night. But he needed to be centered, and that would have been impossible sitting in empty rooms. Few had ever seen the private chambers of Robert Dagan, but those granted the privilege never forgot the eerie craziness. On a table next to him lay a rare 1828 first edition of fairy mythology. 
In the two volumes was found not the emasculated cartoon aberrations of pop culture, but the memory of terrifying encounters with dangerous beings that once haunted simple cottages and simpler lives, stealing and replacing babies, demanding gifts, entering beds with overwhelming passion, and kidnapping men and women to live in a world beyond time. In those days it was called the fairy faith, and for people born in tiny villages lost in the great forests of England and Europe, a hellish faith it had been. Dagon despised the arrogant little prigs who declared such beliefs nothing more than primitive stages in the evolution of Western consciousness. Evolution? No, devolution. At least those primitives knew that their invisible enemies were real. His collection of the fairy faith extended to more than 100 volumes, but it wasn't limited to books. Beneath the rare edition sat an airtight display case. To the visitor, the contents were grotesquely humorous. In the case lay five tiny bodies, no larger than a human hand, each a study in brown desiccation. Strands of dull hair hung from their skulls, and their skin was like the most delicate tissue. At the ends of matchstick arms and legs were minuscule hands and feet. The bodies lay on what appeared to be dried leaves. In reality, there were wings so diaphanous that the bottom of the case could be seen through them. Two were male and three female. All were naked, but a magnifying glass would be needed to see their genitalia. The first reaction when anyone looked at the display was amazed laughter. The smiles and jokes would continue until the visitor bent close to examine the faces. Then the smiles would fade. Even in death, each bore the imprint of chilling evil. The males had died with open mouths, the females with mouths locked shut. In the open mouths were jagged teeth. Three had their eyes closed. In two they were open, but with no eyeballs in the sockets. Eyeballs or not, from them came the overwhelming sensation that they were glaring back at you with utter malevolence. Of course, the dead fairies weren't real. They were limited edition sculptures by a half-sane artist whose studio was next to a train station outside of London, and they had cost a small fortune. That's what he told people. But he neglected to say that the extent of the artist's skill went to the fabrication of mummified flesh and bones. He was happy for the display to be understood on a purely commercial level. They were exquisite frauds, part of a sophisticated grind show that he was developing for the club. Step right up, see the dead fairies, five little bodies all in a row. See what happens when children don't clap for Tinkerbell. But dead fairies were only the beginning of Dagon's peculiar interests. Behind heavy glass on an ancient shelf inlaid with crucifixes stood the grimoires. The bookcase and the collection had come to him complete from a European dealer who swore on his soul that it had once graced the secret chambers of Lorenzo de' Medici, and after that Dr. John D. Anyone reading them would believe that they were nothing more than arcane herbalist and alchemical recipes, mainly concerned with curing disease and the transmutation of metal. But he knew differently, for he held the key. To those who could break the code, the grimoires were books of power for calling and controlling demiurges and fallen angels. He hated them, 
They represented an awful period in his life, a time of deep arrogance, when he had believed that he could dabble at the edges of hell with impunity. In the middle of his foolishness, on the brink of total annihilation, a mysterious power had saved him. What it was he couldn't fathom, but never again would he open those books. Unfortunately, now that he owned them, he couldn't be rid of them. To give them to anyone else, even a museum, might make him complicit in someone's spiritual disaster, and he was afraid to destroy them. The only way to do that would be to follow one of the recipes, which would put him right back into the whole dark mess. So there they stood, guarded by the crucifixes. Did those ancient forms really have the power to contain evil? In spite of his hatred for what they represented, he had no choice but to trust them. Once as a test, he had removed them. Never again. On the shelf, there was only one book that he continued to read, and it wasn't like the others. It was the translation of fragments from a lost work that was infinitely older. It bore the title, Wine Press of Heaven, and from it he had gained part of the knowledge that had brought him to this night. The rest of Dagon's collection was considerably less dangerous. In another locked display lay a large fragment of petrified wood purchased from an old shepherd at the foot of a Turkish mountain. On one side of the slab there were faded letters that appeared to have been carved before the wood turned to stone. It was a magnificent forgery, but the romance had captured his imagination. The carving purported to be an unknown fragment from the Gilgamesh epic, the story of the Sumerian Noah. The Noah myth had always resonated with Dagon, first because he knew the great flood had actually occurred, and second because he had a profound dislike for aggregated humanity. While driving on an interstate or watching television news, he could wish for another great flood to sweep everyone away. Everyone but him, of course. How pleasant it would be to live in a pristine world sans people. Unfortunately, there was always a downside to every cataclysm. In his mind, he could imagine Noah, after the water receded, alone with his family on Ararat. He could see him planting his vineyard on a lovely, dew-drenched slope, afraid to go down into the silent valleys because they were glutted with putrefying flesh. He could imagine Noah, in an agony of loneliness, standing next to the ark, cutting deep into the salty wood, a cry to the gods for there to be no more deluges. And then the rainbow. The most fascinating aspect of the petrified fraud was that the letters were in a language older than Sumerian, or so several scholars had told him. He had bought the slab on a whim, bolstered by the fact that the blind shepherd who had sold it had known his name without asking. A neat trick. And no one enjoyed good magic more than Robert Dagan. On the wall across from the slab was his Egyptian collection, which included an array of amulets and magical papyri from a range of dynasties, all focused on the same eternal concerns, prayers for protection, for money, for health, for a good crop, for love, for children, for a pleasant afterlife, scattered with curses against enemies and false lovers. Over all the millennia, nothing ever changed about people. Just off the living room in his private office, he kept the jewel of the whole collection. A complete 16th century alchemical laboratory, acquired from a dishonest abbot who ruled over the Spanish monastery where the paraphernalia had resided since being forcibly removed from the cave of a sorcerer during the Inquisition. As old as they were, some of the compounds in the bottles were so noxious that to expose them to air meant the immediate evacuation of the mansion. 
This Dagon knew from unfortunate experience, and ingesting some of those compounds had taken him to the strangest dimensions that he had ever encountered. He didn't use the laboratory. His own alchemical experiments were carried out with the latest equipment in a warehouse on the edge of the city. In Dagon's apartment, there was one artifact that was completely out of place. On a wall hung an enlargement of a front page from the Chicago Tribune. The banner headline read, Convicted Magician Murderer Escapes from Supermax. And below that, Master Illusionist Robert Dagan vanishes from isolation cell for hours, then reappears. Dagan glanced at his watch. According to his calculations, it was time. Rising from the chair, he walked across the room and stood facing a blank wall. With one finger, he traced a symbol. There was a soft whir, and the wood parted, revealing a hidden shelf. On it sat two ancient wooden strong boxes, banded with iron and sealed with rusting locks. Removing the smaller one, he touched the wall, and it closed. Then he walked back to his chair and sat down. From his pocket, he withdrew a rusted key. Carefully inserting it in the lock, he turned and jiggled it, teasing it open. Inside, on a velvet pad, lay three ugly lumps the size of a child's fist. He picked up the smallest one. Extruding from it were twisted worm-like fossils. Softly, he said, Wormstone, symbol of all that grows in the soil of the earth. Putting it back, he lifted another. In this one, two frog-like shapes were melded into one vile form. Staring into their eyes, he whispered, Frogstone, symbol of all that walks and crawls and flies. Then he replaced it. Last of all, he removed a bizarre rock molded with three half-human faces. Fixing his gaze on the ugliest of them, he called out, Godstone, stone of the fallen, symbol of power to open and bind, as above, so below, as below, so above, Laurent Solinki Tormation, Laurent Solinki Tormi. From the lumps came a low vibration, but that was the moment when the electricity chose to fail. Sitting in the darkness, Dagon swore. <laughs>